Hey, I'm Brett Podolsky, co-founder of The Farmer's Dog. We make fresh food for dogs. We started the company when we saw what a huge difference it made in my own dog, Jada, when she stopped eating ultra-processed kibble and started eating fresh, whole food. The Farmer's Dog food isn't fancy. It's just real food delivered to your door in pre-portioned packs. It's better for them and easier for you. Get 50% off your first box at thefarmersdog.com slash podcast. That's thefarmersdog.com slash podcast. Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Hey, folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Cindy Freeman. He looks so much like Santa. He's like, yeah, kids mistake me for Santa on the subway in the summer when I'm wearing shorts. <laughs> that and more. But before that, would you let two strangers go through your most personal messages and broadcast them to the world? Well, each week, Nicole Dressbell and Matt Stroop do just that to anyone brave enough to sit in the studio with them on the podcast Inbox. Listen along as they explore their guests' inboxes, you know, their text messages, their email inboxes, for comedy gold, nothing is off limits. I don't know when my episode of Inbox is running, uh, but I sat down with them recently and did this, and it was really nerve-wracking. They found some texts between me and JC, the producer of this show, which make us sound like lunatics. Um, they found some emails between me and some kinksters about plans for for incredibly filthy evenings. It's crazy. So check out Inbox now on Apple Podcasts or wherever you find your favorite shows. Also, if you are still in the giving mood this holiday season, don't forget to visit us at patreon.com slash risk. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash risk to become a member, one of our patrons. There's so much fabulous bonus content there, and it's just a great way to help keep risk running. Or another way you can help us out is to buy a gift certificate at thestorystudio.org. Give the gift of storytelling. One-on-one -on -one sessions with me over Skype, storytelling training, you know, in person in New York or Minneapolis or Los Angeles, or our video courses that you can take in your own time at your own pace. Just go to thestorystudio.org. There's lots of ways to give, gift certificates or other ways to give others the gift of storytelling training. Now here's the show. Whoa, whoa, whoa. 
kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and this is the boy least likely to behind me now. And this is our Holiday Stories number 10 (laughs) episode, our 10th time presenting Winter Holiday Stories. This is our 2017 addition to the tradition. It's also our last episode of the year. This has been just an incredibly psychologically challenging year. I mean, probably for you, very definitely for me. But the show is doing better than ever and has been kind of for me and for, I think, a lot of you, kind of like shelter from the storm. A place to refuel or a place to reconnect with compassion and hope and the wisdom that people gain from challenging experience. Now, I have to tell you, I am in love with this episode. This episode is so jam-packed with just wonderful stuff. <laughs> Share it! Go ahead and play some of this episode for your friends, your family, whether you're in the car going somewhere or sitting around the living room. I have done this before with my family and found that it gets them then sharing stories of their own. You know, <laughs> you learn things that happened when you were a kid that you have no recollection of. That You're like, all right, maybe that explains a few things. In just a bit, we are going to hear an absolutely gorgeous story by Kevin Boll. But before that, we're going to start with a story from someone who is so very near and dear to our hearts here at Risk. She is an essential member of the Risk team. Cindy Freeman coaches so many of our storytellers that tell stories at our touring shows around the country. She also teaches for our school, the Story Studio. She is just a Wonder Woman. (laughs) Maybe the Wonder Woman. Maybe she's hiding something. You know, mild-mannered Story Studio teacher by day. (laughs) Anyway, here she is now. This is Cindy Freeman at the Risk Live Show at Littlefield in Brooklyn with a story we call The Doves of Christmas. It is the mid-1980s. I am about 22 years old, and I have gotten myself a job as a Christmas elf. (laughs) And I am really excited about this. Not so much about Christmas, I'm Jewish. But it's more that this is a paid gig. And this is super special to me because the last thing my acting teacher did when I graduated from college was to sit me down and take me out to lunch to say, you know, I really don't know if you have what it takes to make it. In fact, I think that you would save yourself a lot of heartache if you just quit right now. But here I am just a few months later with a paid gig. Ha! 20 bucks an hour in the 1980s to be a Christmas elf. 
And to understand how this is happening, I have gotten hired by this really amazing uh, theater company in the Boston area. They are known for innovative, interactive stuff. They actually won a number of Smithsonian Awards at local museums. And uh, they are doing Christmas at the Crown Prince of Department Stores of the Boston area. Uh, this is a store that no longer exists, but they uh, competed with a Macy's. And they just wanted to prove to Macy's every year that, uh, Macy's, you don't know Christmas. We know Christmas. Hence, they have hired like this innovative theater company, and they have gotten our Santa, Sean. He is a Shakespearean actor. He is six foot four with his own real hair and his own real beard. He looks so much like Santa. He's like, yeah, kids mistake me for Santa on the subway in the summer when I'm wearing shorts. <laughs> and he's like, yeah, 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 I'm on vacation. What do you want? You know, he's, he loves being Santa. And in fact, on our one day of training, he's telling me and Lisa, the other elf, like, you know, uh, your job is to just keep those kids entertained. You know, have fun with them. Like, come up with an elf name and an elf history because I take my time with those kids. Our job is to bring them magic. And I'm thinking to myself, wow, this actually sounds like it could be fun. And that also is amazing in contrast back to this college education I have just come out of. I went to the school that um, they believed that uh, the life of an actor was rough. And if you could do anything else in this world, you should do that instead. They believed for an actor it was brutal, it was rejection, it was uh, constant not knowing when you're going to eat next. And they were going to make us tough. And they did this by screaming at us constantly. Um, think Full Metal Jacket with like musical show tunes. <laughs> I had one teacher whose catchphrase was, why are you even here? <laughs> it was horrible. I used to cry, which I actually think was the goal. I imagine they had meetings in the morning, like who are we gonna try to make cry today? And if you cried, they would scream at you, why are you crying? They were not very nice people. I remember one day I was walking through the halls. My acting teacher said, how you doing, Cindy? And I said, oh, you know, my stomach has been killing me lately. And um, in hindsight, was probably because of the stress of that college. And I was like, you know, and I'm seeing a doctor today. I'm getting tests. And I just, I've never had tests like this. I'm really worried. And she said, you know what? I want to give you a hint, uh, a tip that I think is going to help you through the rest of your life. And I was like, okay. And she said, when people ask you, how you doing? They really don't care. <laughs> These were, oh, anyhow. So this is the education that I have come out of. And here I am. And it looks like we're going to have fun. And you would think that, like, you know, I would believe after all of this that I'm clearly tough enough to survive everything after four years of this. But the problem is that this school has sucked the joy out of performing for me. There was nothing fun about this. All the reasons why I had started as a kid, you know, when I wanted to pretend to be somebody else or put on crazy costumes or try to make people laugh, like all of that was gone. And over the summer, I had been working at the Marriott as a waitress and my coworker who was a few years older than me, had, we were talking about it. He was like, yeah, my education was just like yours. You know, I think these teachers, like they've given up because they need the comfort of tenure, right? So just think of like, they couldn't make it doesn't mean that you can't make it. And don't believe them. It's really not that tough out there. Do two shows, 
two and decide for yourself what the real world is like. And I remember crying, like, thank you. Like, he really brought me to tears. But here I am on faith, and I have gotten cast. And it is the day after Thanksgiving. And again, this department store goes all out. We are on a horse-drawn sleigh with the horses with the furry hooves. And we are clip-clopping through the uh, cobblestones of downtown Boston into the main thoroughfare downtown crossing. Full page ads, all the local press. Um, so there are like like three, four, five hundred people out there. And as we're coming closer, you can hear the kids in the distance like, Santa! They are going nuts. And as we get closer, I can see the logos, CBS, NBC. You know, it's like the local news affiliates are out. I'm just like, oh, my God, I'm going to make it to the news. And my teachers at that school are going to go, she didn't quit or something. I don't know. But it's just like, Yeah. I'm going to be sort of maybe famous. Anyhow, so we get in there and we get off of our horse-drawn sleigh and we escort Sean up to this platform and we take a little bow and everyone goes, yay, and we back up. And I kid you not, the mayor of Boston presents the keys to the city to Sean and he gracefully accepts them and says, ho, 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 you know, ah, ladies and gentlemen, in exchange for this wonderful, wonderful tribute that you have given me and these keys, I want to present a gift to you, a hundred doves of peace, at which point two animal handlers and lederhosen, this married couple, they lift the lid off this box before a silver and white with a big bow and out spew a hundred doves. It's just like, it's like fireworks, but alive. I mean, it's literally like they're, they're right by me. So it's like, I can feel the winds of their wings in my face. and I'm backing up and it's like bat out of hell. And they're just going and going and going. And when you think there should be no more doves, there's more doves. It's like a clown car of doves, right? But once they get in the air, they start swirling above the crowd, and it's gorgeous, and everybody's saying, oh, and the last little dove goes by my face, and we all naturally sort of look down into the box. Yeah, I can tell you already kind of know. There's 20 or 30 dead, crushed, bleeding, bloody white doves. You can see like they, their wings are broken and they're flopping around. One of them is missing an eye and it's staring at me with its other little eye as if to say, maybe you can help us. At which point the handlers bash down the bo- on top of the box and we look up to a sea of happy children. <laughs> They're so happy, and uh, Sean is a total trooper. He's just like, ladies and gentlemen, meet us in Santa's village in 30 minutes. And we are sort of escorted off, and I'm like, what's happening here? What was that? And he's like, shh, 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 in the dressing room, in the dressing room. So we get to the dressing room, and my heart is just going a mile a minute. I'm feeling nauseous, and in walk the animal handlers, and I'm like, what went wrong? And they're like, what? I'm like, you lost, some of your doves didn't make it. And the woman looks at me, and she goes, Oh, that, yeah, don't worry about it. That happens all the time. I know. And I'm just like, what? And Sean goes to his full 6'4", and he just says, excuse me, ma'am, are you saying every time you pull this stunt, you lose 20 or 30 animals in your care? And she's like, well, you can't get that many doves in a box that small without losing a few. And the husband just like, what are you, a vegetarian? (laughs) 
And Sean's like, I don't know what. And he goes, you eat turkey last night? Hypocrites. And they start laughing at us. Oh, a bunch of hypocrites. And they're like turning into street clothes. And I'm just like in shock. And suddenly we're pulled off for a photo opportunity with children. So I'm trying to talk to Sean. Like, what happened? He's like, shh, do not talk about this. Do not talk about this. And so the one thing my college has taught me is how not to cry when all I want to do is cry. So I get out there and I fake a smile and I get through the day and the kids are so happy and they're like, Santa, we want to meet Santa. And I'm just thinking to myself, you have no idea. You have no idea. Santa doesn't want me to talk about the death I have just experienced. That's who Santa is. And I get on the subway and I am just super upset because there is just this thing of like, this is everything that the teachers warned us about, about like, like it being tough. It's actually the animal handlers remind me of my teachers with this, just this attitude. And maybe my friend from the Marriott is just wrong. And as I'm getting home and I'm wiping the tears, I'm thinking to myself, maybe, maybe the moral high ground is to quit because I don't want to live in a world where this kind of thing is okay. And the phone rings. And it's Jeff. He's the owner of the theater company. And I, he's like, hey, how you doing? I don't trust authorities. I'm like, I don't know, is this a trick question? And if I tell you the truth, will you fire me? So I'm just like, I'm fine. Why? And he's like, well, Sean came over right after work and told us about the dubs. And I'm like, oh, yeah, it was, uh, it was, it was, it was rough. And he's like, well, he's, he's written a letter. And we would like you to sign it only if you want to. I already have. Can I read it to you? And I said, sure. And he reads this letter, which only a Shakespearean actor could have written. <laughs> Which ends with, perhaps you don't think much of the job of Santa and the elves, but me and the actors that I am working with do. Our job is to bring magic to the most innocent of all our children and give them memories that they will hold dear, not just for today, but for the rest of their lives. And we don't know what is going on, perhaps, outside of this department store, but their families have chosen to bring them here for the gift of magic. And in stark contrast is what we witnessed today. The brutality and the casual brutality that we witnessed, we deserve not just an apology from being part of that, but also an assurance that you will never work with live animals ever again. And if we do not get such, myself and the other two actors will have to resign from the position of Santa and the elves. Santa was threatening to quit. My little heart just kind of sang a little soon, and I just like, yeah, you please put my name on that. He's like, are you okay to come to work tomorrow? I'm like, I'm fine. And we get to work the next day, and Jeff's there, and Sean's there, and I get hugs from both. I'm not used to hugs. I wasn't a huggy school, and it's just like, this is nice. And then out of nowhere, the executives evidently got faxed this letter because they come pouring in. There's eight of them, all in suits. Spokesperson is this woman in like a little tight little dress, I think Barbie's mother, in her 50s, ex-model, absolute beautiful ice princess, but just weeping. We do believe in magic. We do. It's just it's this what we do every year. <laughs> and Sean just stood up and gave this poor woman a hug. And we had, uh, we, then we went out to work and it was absolutely wonderful. I think that was the day that I had this kid like say to me, I don't know if I should be here, I'm Jewish. And I said, so am I. In fact, all the elves are Jewish. <laughs> and who else do you expect to work on Christmas Eve? <laughs> 
and Lisa, we came up with this patter about like, yeah, do you, what do you want for Christmas? You want broccoli? You know, because we have all this broccoli. We play, we, nobody wants the broccoli. We watch kids tearing out of Santa's little space, screaming to their parents, Ma, Ma, he's the real one. He's the real one. And we assured them he really is the real one. In fact, I remember one day taking photos and there was a little girl, I'm not sure exactly what she said, but it was something along the lines of what I want for Christmas is my grandma to get better. And it was like, stop that line, get those parents in here. And there was a mini therapy session with this child and the parents and Santa before this kid left the store. He was incredible. And you granted, you know, I could say that with, uh, with the executives, they came in and they gave an apology, which I do believe was sincere, but it was probably what they needed to do in order to keep Christmas going for that year. But when it came to understanding that there are kind people in the arts and that when things go wrong, you don't have to quit. You simply just need to make a stand for what you believe in. Santa set a tone for my entire career, and Sean, God bless him, because he passed away a few years ago. That man truly saved my soul. Thank you. Won't you join us in a carol before we open our gifts? For unto you is born this day in the city of David a savior. Jesus Christ the Lord. Mamacita. There was a blizzard in Brooklyn. The snow was falling down heavily and there was talk of shutting down the subways. So I shut the bar down a little early that night to make sure that I could get home. But I also shut it down so that I could have the bar to myself in the blizzard. The bar where I work is one of the most beautiful bars in the city. It's over 130 years old. It's all hand-carved wood, details everywhere. There's a proscenium with a giant mirror over the back bar with gargoyles in either corner, stained glass with the first owner's initials in a coat of arms. There are 18-foot ceilings with the original tin and a bar that is a single piece of mahogany from end to end. And there are huge windows out front with bars on them. When the bar is closed, I will sit in my perch behind the bar, enjoy the silence, and perhaps read a book, and definitely have a whiskey. In a snowstorm, I like to watch the snow fall through the windows. The bar is particularly beautiful in a snowstorm. And if you squint 
when the cars are covered and you have the sodium lights coming down from the street lamps and there's an orange glow on the street, you can imagine, almost believe that you are in the 19th century and you wouldn't blink an eye if a horse-drawn sleigh came up Bergen Street. So it was a perfect moment sitting there with my book, reading or not reading and sipping the whiskey. And then out of the storm, there was a knock on the front door. Not getting up from my chair, I drew my hand across my throat, giving the international signal for we are closed, and went back to my book. And the knock came again. And I'm thinking to myself, oh, for fuck's sake. So I heaved myself out of the chair to make my way to the front door. And as I get closer, I can see that there's this figure silhouetted against the streetlight. It's this young woman outside. I say to her, we're closed, I'm sorry, I can't help you. And she says, oh no, I know, I know, I'm sorry. I am so sorry, I can see that you're closed. I just, I'm staying with a friend in the neighborhood and I can't get in, I don't have the keys. Is it possible that I could wait inside until I hear from her? Fine, I say. And motion her to the back door to let her in. Now, after working a bar shift and dealing with people all day long, dealing with drunk people all day long and the same stories over and over again and dealing with the neediness of people and the voices that are sometimes like ice picks in my skull and hearing the same song played over and over again on the jukebox, all I want is the silence. I want this place to myself. So it was frustrating to let this person in, but I can't leave this woman on the stoop in a blizzard. So resigned, I go and open the door and the storm blows in and she blows in and there's snow on her and there's snow on the floor and I shut the door against the wind. The steam is already coming off of her clothes. She pulls back her hood and takes off her scarf and she's this beautiful young woman with close-cropped blonde hair and sparkling eyes. She's stunning. But even that doesn't get past my defenses at this point. She says, thank you, thank you. I'm like, "Eh, no problem. So she finishes taking off her coat and I lead her into the bar and she's this little slip of the thing and she sits in the chair and I offer her a drink and I pour a whiskey for her. She starts to talk. Now, I'm still in my head at this point, and I'm kind enough to give her monosyllabic answers to her questions, but that's really all I can muster at this point. I'm waiting for this phone call to happen so that I can have the night back to myself. But she has this unrelenting cheeriness. Oh, this is the most beautiful bar. I love this bar. Thank you so much for letting me in. You're so kind to let me do this. I know it's difficult and... Yes, I say, fine, thank you, no worries. And then she starts to go deep with the questions, which is like catnip to me. I love to go deep in a conversation. So I'm beginning to have more interest into the things that she's asking. She starts to ask me, how long have you been working here? A long time, I say. 
it must be difficult to do what you do and deal with all these personalities all day long. Yeah, it is. You know, I'm an actress, she says, so I know what it's like working in the food industry myself sometimes. I know what it's like to have to deal with that. And then we start talking about theater and we start talking about her work and how she loved figuring out a character that she was working on, finding the heart of the character. And I talked about how I love that too, being an actor. And I began to thaw a little bit. And then she asked me to put music on. Some bartenders, when they close up a bar, they will play music. They love to put their own personal playlist on and they DJ for a friend or two that they've got in the bar after hours. And for me, I adore the silence. I've been listening to the cacophony of people all day long and music and I just love the silence. But there's more too because I tend to feel things deeply. And music in particular is very evocative to me. I use it sparingly. So I say, no, no, you know, I'm, I'm good with the silence. And she says, please, just put on something. Who's your favorite artist, she says. <sighs> Billie Holiday, I say. She says, that's wonderful. Put some Billie Holiday on. Fine. So I go to the iPod and I find Blue Moon. And Billy starts singing. And she fills the space with her voice. And it just seems like she lives there, too. And she's singing to us. And then the woman reaches over the bar for my hand. I'm flabbergasted. I don't know what to do for a moment. But the whiskey has softened me. And Billy's softened me. And her conversation has softened me. And so I take her hand warm in mine and she leads me around the bar and we find an open space on the floor I put my hand on her waist and take her other hand and hold it up she puts her hand on my shoulder and we start to dance and Billy's singing to us and we are slowly dancing to her music and the snow is falling outside the giant windows and I can feel her warmth next to me. I can feel the warmth beyond her body, this warm soul that has walked into my bar at this strange time. And we slowly move and she puts her head on my shoulder and we sway and I can feel her soft back and her soft hand and her head on my shoulder and it's just perfect. And then the song ends, and I look at her, and I can see the sparkles in her eyes, and her smile melts my heart. And in that moment, I'm in love, and I sense nothing but love from her. So we grab our drinks, and we go to the front window, and we talk in whispers now, like children up after bedtime, and stealing these moments of watching the snow and the light and feeling how lucky we are to be seeing this. And then the call comes and it's time for her to go. 
So we take our drinks to the bar and we put them down and I walk her to the back door and I unlock it as she's pulling on her coat and tying her scarf and putting her mittens on her hands and she looks at me and we hug. And then I open the door and the storm blows in again and she disappears into the night. And I slowly make my way back to my perch behind the bar. My drink is there, my book is there, and the snow is still falling, and it occurs to me that yes, in fact, everything has changed. The room looks different, the snow looks different, and I think this was a perfect moment. This must be what it's like to be inside of a snow globe. This perfect moment encased in glass, having no impact on anything that comes after, no connection with anything that came before, just this perfect crystalline moment in time. And I pick up my whiskey and I sip, and I think, that's what this is. This is a snow globe moment. And I thank her silently for opening my eyes to the beautiful surprises that can come out of a snowstorm on a dark night. I see forests and it's 
the 25th of December And my old man plays the piano for Christmas He plays the piano for Christmas And we're all there All the aunties and uncles And the angels on the top of the tree Up there on the top of the tree And I never, no, I never ever realized And I never, no, I never ever realized This is Risk. This is everything but the girl. Oh my gosh, I love the story of how the band got its name. You know, they're a duo, a man and a woman. And they auditioned when they were still really early on in their career for a major, major record label. And the big music executive, he felt that the woman wasn't physically attractive enough. So he said to the band after they were finished with the audition, We'll take everything but the girl. <laughs> and the band said, well, fuck that. And they ended up naming themselves after that comment. That's the kind of spirit <laughs> we need to keep in 2018 and moving forward. Don't let the bastards get you down. And before everything but the girl, we heard an interstitial by our absolutely scintillatingly Gorgeous episode editor, Jeff Barr, and a story by Kevin Bull before that, that beautiful story called Snow Globe by Kevin Bull. And before that, an interstitial that was sent in by a Risk fan, J.J. Evans. He called his little interstitial there Noche Buena. This was the year that we once again started having Risk fans send in interstitials and Risk theme songs. Most Risk fans have not heard season one and season two of the show, which is insane because season one and season two were where the foundations of the show were laid down. So many of the greatest stories that have ever been told on Risk are in season one and season two. And that was back when we used to have people sending in songs and interstitials. So this was the year that we revived that tradition. And, it, and it's been great fun once again. So if you want instructions on how to do that, if you're a musician or someone who likes to fiddle around with audio, write to me at kevin at show.com. And if you want to hear season one or season two, just go to our shop at show.com or become a $5 per month or more patron of ours at patreon.com. In a little bit, we are going to hear from a new favorite of ours. Every time she's done the show, it, it's just been so beautiful. Sarah Long Hendershot. But before that, the second appearance on the Risk podcast of Jamie Brickhouse, the author of... <laughs> Dangerous When Wet, a memoir of booze, sex, and my mother. He has an award-winning solo show by the same name. Here he is now. This is Jamie Brickhouse with a story we call Mama Jean's Photograph. See, I never... 
So I'm standing next to my older brother, Ronnie, on the day that our mother, Mama Jean, died, a week before Christmas, 2009. Ronnie is still in his roofer overalls, and we're standing at the entrance to Mama Jean's bedroom down in Beaumont, Texas. And we're staring at her giant, empty, king-size bed. She died in hospice earlier that day. And Ronnie looks at me and he says, tell me something, Pank. What are they gonna do with a body? Well, what do you mean, what are they gonna do with a body? They're gonna put it in the coffin and then bury her. Well, can't they just stuff her and put her on the bed so then we can look at her and she won't yell at us anymore? Ronnie, what are you talking about? You know, like they did in that Madonna movie you took us to Christmas of 94. Avita? Yeah, that's it. Avita Perone's body had been uh, embalmed and put in a glass coffin to be put on display. Now, Mama Jean used to always say that Ronnie marches to the beat of a different drummer to explain his peculiar brand of wisdom. He's a Forrest Gump type who processes the world with a combination of childlike wonder and the brutal honesty of a drunk. Now I'm gay, no surprise, a writer, live in New York, and listen to show tunes. Ronnie is a proud redneck, a roofer, has always lived in Beaumont, and worships Neil Diamond. How we came out of the same womb, I'll never know. He's actually my half-brother. His father died when he was just a toddler, and Mama Jean married my father. But of course, the one thing we have in common was the all-consuming, domineering love of Mama Jean. So we're standing there looking at that king-size bed, and Ronnie makes another proclamation. I'm telling you, Pink, Mama is up there in heaven right now, and she's reunited with my father, and she's getting a Neil Diamond welcome. <laughs> I knew Neil Diamond played the world, but heaven? <laughs> Mama Jean ruled that house from that king-size bed. I mean, one minute she would look at us and a smile would spread across her face and she would say, oh God, I love you so much. You'll just never know how much I love you. And the next minute she'd yell, God damn it and tell us what we were doing wrong to fuck up our lives. But Ronnie spent at least about one night a week genuflecting at the altar of that king-size bed. She wouldn't let him sit on the bedspread. Um, which, by the way, she usually was lounging in a floral caftan that matched the floral bedspread, which matched the floral headboard, which matched the floral wallpaper, which matched the floral drapes. Her not-so-secret garden. <laughs> But Ronnie was always at the foot of that bed because she wouldn't let him sit on the bedspread because he was in his dirty overalls. And he told her everything. Everything about, you know, how his roofing business was going to the upcoming concert dates he had booked for Neil Diamond, to his adventures at the Booby Rock, his titty bar of choice in nearby Houston. Mama, I'm gonna take you there sometime. You gotta see these girls. Ronnie, I don't need to go there. Now, what do you, I, I don't want I don't even wanna hear this. Mama, I'm telling you, those girls are amazing. And there's this one girl, she can spin those tassels in opposite directions. And when she gets going, it blows my mind. Mama, the woman has talent. 
Talent? Ronnie, I don't need to hear this. I think she really did like hearing that. <laughs> and I did my own time on that king-size bed, usually when I was down visiting at Christmas time, and I would indulge her and, well, I didn't tell her about my favorite go-go boys at the cock and ball bars that I frequented in New York. But I did indulge her and watched her uh, favorite movie musical, Moulin Rouge, over and over and over. And I would hold her hand while we were watching it. Dutiful gay son that I am. And dutiful gay son that I am, I picked out her final burial outfit. A red floor-length evening gown, which she loved to wear at her Christmas parties that my father and she gave about every year. And before I took it to the funeral home, I laid it out on her king-size bed. And I pulled out my digital camera, this was before I had an iPhone, and I took a few photos. And I was trying to recreate a last image of her that looked like I knew her best, lying on that bed. And I was hoping to erase the actual last image of her, which was her dying in a hospital bed in an antiseptic hospice room. But when I looked at the photos on the camera, they didn't satisfy. I mean, it just looked like her headless, deflated ghost. But the next day, at the funeral parlor, during the private family viewing of her body, I looked down at her in the casket and you know how people say at funerals, oh, she looks so natural, so at peace. And it's rarely true. Well, in her case, it was. I mean, the funeral parlor did a good job of doing her hair, quaffing it to a perfect bubble in a helmet, just like she always wore it. And the makeup was done just so, like she always did it. And of course she was supine, which was a natural position for her. I was used to seeing her that way. But it was the look on her face. She has this slight smile, as if she had just dozed off, and any second she'd open up her eyes and yell, God damn it, why'd you wake me? Or, God, I love you so much. And when I was alone with the body, instinctively, I pulled out my digital camera, and I took photos of her. But I kept looking over my shoulder, paranoid that someone would walk in and catch me, because I felt, I don't know, I felt, kind of creepy and kind of weird and like it was wrong and I don't know, maybe disrespectful. But then I thought, why? I mean, the ancient Greeks and Romans did the same thing in the form of the death mask. So why not this? And I don't know what I was going to do with those photos. I mean, I don't think I was going to frame them. But I needed to possess that last image of her. So I stayed down there for the next couple of weeks through Christmas. And I don't remember much about that Christmas, just that she wasn't there. But then I rented a car because I needed a little bit of break from the family. And I drove over to Houston, not to go to the Booby Rock, um, but to see a good friend of mine who was having a party. And it was a nice respite. And I you know, took a bunch of pictures together at the party. And when I got back to Beaumont, um, I thought I better upload those pictures and send them to my friend. And I'm looking around in my overnight bag for the camera. And it's not there. Like, shit. All those good photos I took at the party. And then I realized the photos, the last images of Mama Jean were on that camera. I freaked out. I called my friend in Houston. I didn't tell her what was on that camera, but I said, you know, did I leave my camera there? And she tore up her house and she couldn't find it. I thought maybe I left it in the rental car. 
So I called the rental car company and I told them that I may have left the camera there, but I needed that camera back. And they were pretty good and they got back to me the next day. Good news. The last renter of the car had found the camera underneath the driver's seat. Shwoo. So I go to the rental car agency and I pick up the camera and I'm so anxious about those photos. I almost check it right then, but then I get a little paranoid because I'm like, I don't want the clerk to see my dead mother on the phone. So I wait until I get home and I check the camera. Nothing. The photos from that party in Houston, gone. The photos of my deflated mother's ghost on the king-size bed, gone. And those last images of her in the coffin, gone. Who the fuck would erase someone's dead mother from their camera? <laughs> but seriously, it was like a gut punch. It was like one more wave of loss. So fast forward a year later, and I'm back down in Belmont for Christmas, and we've decided, the family's decided to be low-key this Christmas. I mean, Christmas had always been a big deal with Mama Jean. I mean, she had a giant Christmas tree, and that house was decorated within an inch of its life, and of course, she and my father had those annual Christmas parties at which we were expected to attend. So this year, we decided no gifts, and we were just gonna have a small family dinner which was too bad about the no gifts because it was always easy for me to get a gift for Ronnie because I just had to get him anything Neil Diamond or Elvis Presley related, and I succeeded. Now, Ronnie never knew what to get for me, so he would just give some money to Mama Jean and she would pick out a gift for me. And I hadn't talked to Ronnie much in that year. And frankly, I was a little bit worried about him because I was worried about how he was dealing with the loss of Mama Jean. And all the family friends kept asking about Ronnie. How's Ronnie doing? How's he doing without his mother? So I took him out to dinner, and we meet at La Cantina Mexican restaurant, and Ronnie struts in wearing a 10-gallon cowboy hat and a red and black Yamaha windbreaker and black jeans held up by a platter-sized silver belt buckle big enough to serve chips and guacamole off of. <laughs> Even in Beaumont, Ronnie stands out. So how you doing, Ronnie? I'm doing all right, Pank. By the way, He's been calling me Pank since I was in junior high. And I don't know if it's a Texas twanged version of pink, because I used to wear pink Oxford cloth shirts, or maybe his subliminal mind was telling him that his little brother was queer. <laughs> anyway, he looks at me and he says, Pank, it's been blowing my mind to think that Mama is up there in heaven, reunited with my father. Which is not to say she's forgotten about your father or pushed him aside. On the contrary, when it's your father's turn to die, he'll be buried on the other side of Mama, and then he'll go up to heaven and join them. But he and my father are going to have to take turns with Mama. <laughs> Do you know what swingers are? <laughs> yeah. Well, my father and your father are going to swing. They don't call it heaven for nothing. <laughs> okay. I um, glance out the window at the parking lot to chew on that nugget. <laughs> and I see Ronnie's truck out there. And I see Mama Jean. She's flashing her thousand-watt smile, red lipstick, her bubble of brunette hair, a red feather boa. Ronnie has taken her obit photo, blown it up, laminated it, and slapped it on the truck door. 
He's written underneath in red magic marker. Gene Brickhouse, 1934, 2009. God bless. Now, it wasn't a complete shock because my father had already told me about it, but seeing is believing. And my father was actually mortified about it. He said, my God, your mother would die if she knew he was running around with that on the side of his truck. Too late, I wanted to say. And then I thought of my homage to Mama Jean. I had taken her black and white 1965 wedding photo when she's sporting a giant bouffant flip and I placed it in an antique art deco vitrine in my apartment. Same concept, <laughs> different execution. <laughs> so Ronnie, um, I'm thinking about going to the cemetery while I'm down here. Have you been? Yeah, I go all the time. I go about once a week, as a matter of fact, and I talk to her. Oh, I guess in his mind, he had just moved that king-size bed from her house to the graveyard. And when I'm talking to her, I know what she looks like. What do you mean, what she looks like? Of course you know what she looks like. No! I mean, we saw her body in the coffin before they put it in the ground. So I know what she's wearing when I'm talking to her. Oh, well, yeah, I picked out her outfit. <laughs> and I know the look she has on her face. Oof, that look. Knew what he was talking about, and it was another gut punch. It brought back those erased photos. And then I told Ronnie what I had never told another living soul. I told him what I'd done, that I'd taken photos of her in the coffin and about losing the camera and the photos being erased. Well, yeah, I did the same thing. What? Yeah, I took pictures of a mom in the coffin too. Really? I was always stunned when Ronnie and I had the same instincts. <laughs> but not more than this time. Yeah, I've got prints out in my uh, glove compartment. I'll have some copies made for you at Walgreens if you want. He said this as casually as if he were gonna lend me a pair of jumper cables. Now, here I was, worried about how Ronnie was processing his grief. Meanwhile, I wasn't even sure if there was an afterlife, but I was busy booking memorial Catholic masses for the repose of her soul. And I was riding the subway with my iPod and uh, her playlist of her music on there and sobbing uncontrollably in public. But Ronnie had it all figured out. He knew where to find her when he needed to talk to her, the graveyard. And he was absolutely certain that she was up there in heaven having a swinging good time. <laughs> After dinner, we went out to the parking lot and he pulled those photos from his glove compartment, showed them to me. Yep. Just like I remembered. The hair, the makeup, that look on her face. She looked like my mother. I handed him back to Rodney and he said, you ought to go out to the cemetery and talk to her. She can hear you. And then he got into his truck and he slammed his door. And there was Mama Jean's photographic ghost smiling back at me. <laughs> wow. Ronnie had just given me the most amazing Christmas gift that neither he nor I could have ever imagined him picking out. And as he drove away, I heard him crank up his stereo 
And at that moment, I was absolutely certain that Mama Jean was up there in heaven getting her Neil Diamond welcome. <laughs> Thank you. Christmas is alcohol and cock and endless balls. Gee, if I could only have the tongue and cock and a hand and asshole. And I could wish you Merry Christmas. It was a bitterly cold Rochester, New York, December, and the power was out in my apartment. And it wasn't out because a storm knocked it out. It was out because I didn't have the money to pay the energy bill. There were only five more days till Christmas, and there was no heat. There were no lights. There was no refrigerator. And this kind of setback I, would have been not that difficult to deal with if I had been single. But I was a single mom, and I had this great 11-year-old son. And, I, you know, as a parent, I think especially as the only parent, just way down deep in the core of your being, you want to give your child a nice holiday. There's this awareness that these are memories that your kid is going to have for the rest of his life. Rochester winters are really gray and unrelenting. And it helps you to get through it if you have a place to go that's cozy and bright and you can kind of count off the winter season through the holidays. You know, you've got Thanksgiving, and then there's Christmas, and then New Year's, and before you know it, you're almost a Valentine's Day, and you can see St. Patrick's Day off in the distance, and then things are starting to thaw, and you know that you made it through another one. But things had been sliding downhill for me for months, and now <laughs> they had shut us off right before Christmas, and it just, it fills you with shame. I kept trying to play it all off as an adventure for him. He was bright and happy kid, and we would go to the library, and we would get tons of books, and we would crawl under blankets with flashlights and read them, and we had all the Harry Potter books, and we had all the Tintin adventures, and I would read them out loud, and I would have a unique voice for every character, and it really was fun, but eventually you have to come out from underneath the blanket, and you're in your apartment, and you can see your breath, and you dash through the house to the bathroom and the porcelain is like a big block of ice and you wash your hands and the water is so cold that it physically hurts and it turns your hands into claws and it's only fun for so long and you have to learn how to pretend for your child. The month before, in the days leading up to Thanksgiving, I hadn't been able to pay the bill but they didn't shut us off right away. Shane and I came up with this idea for our Thanksgiving feast. 
we were going to try to come up with enough money to buy a single entree from the Chinese restaurant for our Thanksgiving feast. So we pulled all the cushions off of the sofa and we found some change in there. We collected cans and bottles from neighborhood recycling bins and returned them. We even took out the cardboard folder that we'd been putting all the new state quarters in. We pried those back out. And Thanksgiving Day, we counted up our money and we had enough for an entree. And it was very exciting. And we walked there together in the crisp fall air. And Shane chose shrimp with oyster sauce because it sounded like the fanciest thing on the menu. We walked back home. It was a beautiful day. We were going to really make it festive. We were going to cuddle up together on the sofa with our blankets and eat our Chinese food while we watched a VHS copy of It's a Wonderful Life. And Shane was chattering away like he liked to do, and I was dishing out the food. I put a very healthy portion onto his plate. I set it on the table for him with a glass of water. He came over to get it, and he picked it up, and I still ask myself to this day, why did I serve it to him on a paper plate? But for whatever reason, I did. And as he turned away from the table with his plate in one hand, his glass of water in the other, the balance of the food shifted, and it just slipped out of his hand. And I watched it, like in slow motion, just falling towards the floor, and of course, turning over to land food side down on the carpeting. I saw his face just change in that split second. It was one of the most heartbreaking things I've ever seen. The joy, it just evaporated. And I saw the sadness and the guilt just wash over him. We had pulled off this minor miracle and now it was ruined. And I had to think really fast. Your parenting instincts, they just kick in. And I held up the plate that I had just filled with the remainder of the food and I said, no, 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 it's fine. You're good, that's perfectly fine. You accidentally picked up my plate. This is your plate. And that food is fine. The food on the floor, it's still good. There's a a three second rule and I ran over and I scraped it up off the carpet with all the detritus and the dog hair, and I knew that I was going to have to eat it all. I could see the tears in his eyes, and he didn't really believe me, but I knew I was going to have to really sell it, so I did. I just said, mmm, oh, isn't this great? And then I distracted him. Circumstances had brought us to Rochester, which was a new town to us, earlier that September. And we didn't know anybody in Rochester. The job that I had been promised upon my arrival never materialized. And I had not been able to find another one. I had watched what little savings we had evaporate in three months. And my first family was fractured and far away and many of my old friendships hadn't survived the realities of my single parenthood. Most of my old friends were musicians, and they all had their own struggles with money, too. 
sometimes there just isn't someone to go to. I think that this is what people who are used to consistency in their lives don't understand about people who walk the line between solvency and poverty. You can be okay for a long time and then some unexpected thing or two things go south and then the dominoes are falling and you're suddenly in poverty and it's daunting and exhausting to claw your way out of it. You just don't have any slack. So as Christmas approached, it became harder and harder to keep depression at bay and to hide our dire circumstances from Shane. I didn't know if we were going to be able to pay our rent, and I was afraid that we were going to end up in a shelter. And we were living off of spaghetti because I could get a pound of spaghetti noodles for 49 cents and a jar of ragu for 79 cents, Shane was okay with that because he loved spaghetti. But how was I going to get us through Christmas? So Shane was at school for the last day before the holiday break. I sat in that cold and silent apartment, and it's amazing how quiet it gets in winter when there's no power in the house because there's no hum of the refrigerator or the clicking of your computer keys or the TV or the radio. There's just nothing. And I read the want ads again, even though I knew that nobody was hiring a few days before Christmas unless I wanted to become a long-haul trucker. And I heard downstairs someone walk across our porch and a thump. I went to the window and I saw the big brown UPS truck out front. I wasn't expecting anything. So I pulled the blanket more tightly around my shoulders and I went down the narrow stairway to the front door and I opened it up and I got hit with this arctic blast of cold. There was a box sitting there. Just a plain brown box. It was maybe about the size of a toaster oven or so. I picked it up. I saw the return address was Naples, Florida. I couldn't think of anyone that I knew in Naples, Florida. I shook the box, but it didn't make any noise. So I took it upstairs, and I sat down on the floor with a pair of scissors, and I scraped the scissors along the end of the box. And as soon as the tape released the flaps... They sprung out, and wads of paper money came shooting out onto my lap and onto the floor. I couldn't believe my eyes. I was stunned and dumbfounded. I reached my hand in, and the entire box was packed full of crumpled up paper money. And there were a lot of ones, but there were fives, and there were tens, and there were twenties. And I, I, I was laughing and crying at the same time. What in the It was just the last thing in the world that I ever expected to see. There had to be $400 at least. It was a treasure of incredible bounty to me at that point in my life. I thought to myself, Naples, Florida, Naples, Florida. And I remembered my friend Paul, who I hadn't seen for several years. 
He was a piano player, and he spent half the year working in the Thousand Islands and half the year working down in Florida playing piano in bars. And I called him up, and he told me that every night that he played, he took his tip jar at the end of the night and he would dump it into his piano case. And at the end of the year, he would take all the money and he would donate it to somebody that he thought could use it. And for some reason, I had crossed his mind. I stuffed the money back in the box and taped it back up again so that when Shane came home from school, he could sit down on the floor in the same place I was and he could open the box himself and get the same surprise and shock that I had gotten. And there was enough money in that box to get the power back on in time for Christmas. And there was enough money for a small tree and some gifts for each other and enough for a Christmas dinner. We also took a portion of that money and we bought several pairs of gloves and a stack of gift certificates from McDonald's and we went out into that freezing cold December and we gave them away to people who looked like they needed them. The woman at the bus stop whose chin was tucked down into her cloth coat and her hands stuck under her armpits. And the man we saw riding his bike with bright red hands grabbing the metal handlebars. He told us that it was the only way he had to get to work. And those interactions were filled with joy and gratitude. And we kept that tradition for many years until Shane went away to college. I realized that it had all begun with a man sitting in a bar and the people there listening to something that made them happy. And so they gave him something for that. And he shared it with us. And we shared it with other people. And who knows where it went from there. But what it also did was it got me through the end of a really tough year and into a new one. And that new year brought a new job and new friends and a new boyfriend who turned into a loving husband and father that completely unexpected act of kindness kept the other dominoes from falling and it held us together. It was a beautiful Christmas.
that is all for this week's episode, folks. This is Sarah Long Hendershot behind me now, performing with the late Tim Grant. And we just heard a story by her as well. Sarah said that she is not personally a religious person, but that she has feelings about this song, this particular Christmas song, because it has such a a feeling of a mother taking care of her child to it. And before Sarah, we, we, we heard another one of those interstitials that a fan sent in. This one was by Daniel Ari. It was called All I Want for Christmas is Allen Ginsberg. Completely ridiculous. And now let me let you know where Risk is appearing live next. We are in Los Angeles on January 20th at the Bootleg Theater. We are also in San Francisco on January 20th. I'll be there at the San Francisco show on January 20th. We're going to have a great all-star cast. Guy Branham, Dana Gould, Biz Ellis, Marcella Arguello. Going to be a great show. On January 26th, this is important. On January 26th, we have our very first show at Caveat in Manhattan on Clinton Street in the Lower East Side. We are so excited about this show, a new space that we're trying out. People rave about this place, Caveat. So we're there on January 26th. If you're in New York City, come on out. And that about wraps it up for 2017, my friends. Oh my gosh, folks, we are so grateful for all of you. (laughs) We truly love our fans and we love our storytellers and i am so grateful for everyone who works on the risk staff have a very merry christmas happy hanukkah a happy kwanzaa a happy new year <laughs> happy festivus <laughs> and let's all stay in touch with that place deep inside where we can feel, where we know that we're okay. And let's take care of that. Let's take care of ourselves. Let's take care of each other. Let's keep up the good fight, my friends. 2018 could very well be a great year for improving, for progressing for showing up in this world with the very best of our hearts and our minds and our souls. Let's make a difference, everyone. Folks, this year is the year. Take a risk. On the afternoon of Christmas Eve in 1818, in a tiny village high in the Austrian Alps, Joseph Moore, the local Catholic priest, wrote some appropriate stanzas for the season. The church pipe organ, though, had given out and could not be repaired in time for that evening. 
So the church organist, Franz Gruber, wrote a simple tune. Setting the words for a tenor and a bass singer and two guitars. Then that evening, at the midnight service, Silent Night was heard for the first time. The song soon made its way far beyond the town of Olderdorf, but anonymously, without mention of composer or poet. Ladies and gentlemen, Silent Night. Champagne ready. The NBA Finals are here. Welcome to the NBA Finals. Let's raise our glasses and our rings to the two phenomenal teams left standing. My goodness. Here's the high stakes action to thrilling moments we can't miss. He ties the game at the buzzer. And to crowning our next champion. Here's a toast to the NBA Finals. The 2024 NBA Finals presented by YouTube TV continue on ABC.